0: Recovery Elevator, episode 405.
1: Um, alcohol is extremely harmful to our bodies on a cellular level. So if we can just remember that and you know, find other ways to find that dopamine and, and not put that drink in our hand, um, that's ideal.
0: Uh, like this? Yeah, that should work. Mix down. <laughs> yeah, keep going. Yo-yo. Mix down. Three, four. Yo-yo. Wiki, wiki, mix four, down. There we go. Seven, eight. Wiki, wiki, down. Pie's in the house. <laughs> I love it. Wiki, wiki, down. There we go. Three, four. Weeki, weeki, Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. On today's episode, we have Rachel. She's 29 years old from Wisconsin, and took her last drink on September 4th, 2022. Great job, Rachel listeners registration for restore opens thursday december 1st now restore is our intensive dry january course 2023 is a new year you deserve peace joy and a sense of calm now this is much more than a 30-day alcohol free challenge or sobriety course it represents you having the courage to make a major change in your life in this 14 session course geared towards the newcomer we'll cover different recovery pathways Is AA right for you? How to build community, techniques for calming the mind, spirituality, mindfulness, meditation, and the best part is you won't be alone. Join fellow course attendees on Zoom for 14 sessions. Classes are both lecture and small group discussions. Homework and resources are emailed after each course. Course starts Sunday, January 1st at 3 p.m. Eastern, and course days are Sundays, Mondays, and Thursdays. Link is in the show notes for more information. Thank you, Liz. I want to say thank you to all of our Cafe chat hosts for being of service. You guys do such an amazing job. And now let's hear from a fantastic sponsor, Soberlink.
2: Each and every person in the fight against alcohol addiction has their own reason for recovery. Maybe it's your family that's motivating you. Maybe it's your friends. Or maybe you're just finally doing this for yourself. Whatever your reason for recovery is, we're all in this together. At Recovery Elevator, our mission includes having fun in sobriety and building connections with like-minded individuals. That's why we've partnered with SoberLink to expand and strengthen our community even further, as SoberLink is a remote alcohol monitoring technology created to help provide accountability for people in recovery. The system includes a high-tech breathalyzer device with facial recognition that allows you to share your sobriety in real time with loved ones who can offer support in the event of a slip-up or relapse. SoberLink has helped hundreds of thousands of people document proof of sobriety in real time to help build trust and to foster peace of mind. SoberLink is currently building a strong community of people in recovery. Get inspired and inspire others today by joining the community at www.soberlink.com forward slash recovery elevator.
0: Okay, let's get started. We all know what a stigma is and how there is a perceived stigma towards alcoholics, addicts, or those who struggle with addiction. But what if that's incorrect? Maybe the stigma is flat out wrong. So today I want to give you perhaps a different perspective or a different narrative than the stigma that may be swirling in your head right now. This past August at our retreat in Bozeman, Montana, we had a mindfulness and spirituality teacher named Elaine Huang come and speak at the retreat. This was her second time as she spoke at the event in 2019. Now Elaine has been a psychologist, a psychotherapist, has taught meditation, mindfulness, and has guided people through spiritual experiences for over 30 years. In fact, she's currently working with Fortune 500 companies as they realize calmer minds and less stress are good for business. After she spoke at the event this past fall, she said something to me before she left that I want to convey to you the listener. I want to relay this message to those who are in the process of ditching the booze or those who have already done so. So I emailed Elaine asking for her to elaborate a bit more and this was her response. She says, the members of the RE community are of a different breed. You all generally have a higher level of consciousness. It's in the air. There's a higher frequency or more love per square inch that I sense when I'm with your group, both online and in person. She says, I never have to modify or hold back what I want to say or teach when I'm with you or the members of your community. When I'm with other people or groups, I typically have to modify or simplify what I want to teach. This is in comparison to the average consciousness of the majority of the people on the planet. Members of the Ari community are advanced students. They are more resilient, elite, have a greater capacity for love and greater capacity for recovery after pain and suffering. It may be because you were born this way or it was cultivated over many lifetimes. You all are old souls." She continues to say, "'The members of the Ari community are able to transform suffering into something good or usable. You are often able to transform suffering into wisdom, greater strength, or into a service of helping others in some capacity." Okay, I wanna add a couple things. When Elaine says the RE community, that includes you, the listener. It's almost an umbrella statement with the recovery community. So not just those who attended the retreat. Now, transforming suffering into something good isn't exactly the norm. Hitler, Mao Zedong, the Khmer regime, Genghis Kong are examples of entities who use their suffering to create a hell on earth for other people. Using our suffering or rock bottom moments with alcohol to help others is a straight up gangster move. It's intelligence at its core. Thank you Bill and Dr. Bob for making this the foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous. Much of the Buddha's teachings are how to transform suffering or transcend it. One could say we are all mini-Buddhas about to flower. Elaine continues to say, the recovery community has a greater capacity for survival, a greater capacity for compassion and love. Your members have the ability to go beyond survival issues and deepen spirituality. You are all more naturally loving, which is the highest expression of human capacity, an embodiment of our true nature. She says, I feel that you and your group are the part of the 1% of the population that is needed to tip the scales of consciousness in order to save the planet. She says, if 1% of the population is able to attain a higher level of consciousness or a higher vibrational frequency, then we will have the critical mass needed to transform the other 99% of the population. Remember that the highest frequency there is is the frequency of love. So the 1% entrains the other 99% into a higher frequency. Listeners, entrainment is a universal phenomenon that can be observed in physical and biological systems when one system's motion or signal frequency entrains the frequency of another system. Sometimes this is found in pendulum clocks and also with fireflies. As neuroscientist Dr. Joe Dispenza says, coherence begins to consume incoherence there's a youtube video which shows 64 metronomes all ticking to a different beat eventually finding coherence if you want to see this video there is a link in the show notes thank you liz deepak chopra says it takes as little as one percent of a population to create positive change and he believes that if 100 million people underwent a personal transformation in the direction of peace harmony laughter love kindness and joy The world would be transformed. Now let me say those words again. Those words are peace, harmony, laughter, love, kindness, and joy. If I were to describe the point of recovery or where we are headed when we begin recovery, it would contain the words peace, harmony, laughter, love, kindness, and joy. Here at Recovery Elevator, we have rule 22, which is to never take yourself too seriously. We try to embody laughter and joy. Now, Transcendental meditation teacher Maharishi Mahesh predicted that only 1% of humanity is needed to create enough good vibrations to usher in world peace. Elaine's personal teacher named Akira used to tell her it would take 133,000 people to shift the world into higher consciousness at this critical time of change. Elaine says that we, and you the listener are included in this, we are the vessels for love, wisdom, and inspiration. I want to say thank you to Elaine for taking the time to expand on what she mentioned to me at the retreat. Now, listeners, if you want to learn more about Elaine Huang or perhaps book a session with her, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you, Liz. The point I want to drive home is I agree with Elaine and I think we are ahead of the pack. I think we've had a head start as I cover in episode 272. I feel we are the first wave of people to make the river crossing of consciousness. This crossing is something the Buddha said that all of humanity has to make in the very near future. I feel it's the fundamental theme for Eckhart Tolle's book, A New Earth. I think it's the addiction, which is the evolutionary driver that forces us to relocate our authentic selves and discover a better way to live that is more in balance with nature. You don't need to be a sociologist to recognize we are a species that is way out of balance. Threat of nuclear war, global warming, suicide, I'll stop there. So if the stigma is wrong, and we are advanced students, as Elaine says, what do we have to show for it? Well, a lot. It takes guts to go against mainstream society and ditch the booze. You are courageous. We can come together in a room and set aside differences for a common purpose, healing. This one alone is huge. Our political leaders cannot do this, or they do not do it well at all. Another thing is we can admit when we are wrong. We have to. We learn that letting go is more important than being right. We are learning to trust the inner guidance or intuition that we are born with. We are the group who is doing the inner work to discover who we are and what our purpose is. We are the bodhisattvas, as they call it in the East, as we are of service to our fellow human beings who are still struggling. When we do this inner recovery work, we stop polluting the quantum field with thoughts of blame, victimhood and resentment. We stop drinking poison and give others the courage to do so also. After ditching the drink, we flower, not all at once, but we are creating the conditions for a worldwide blooming to take hold. This is where the science of entrainment and coherence come in as I mentioned earlier. It's not a 51%, 49% tipping point. It's a 1% tipping point because peace, harmony, laughter, love, kindness, and joy are what we are all seeking and is what Rumi and quantum science say what you are seeking is also seeking you. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this intro today. And now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp, before we hear from Rachel.
2: Have you ever wished that there was a manual for life and sobriety? I don't know how long you've been listening to this show, but I even wrote an episode intro on this topic titled, there is no manual. I remember going to treatment and seeking for the manual on how to fix myself. Tell me what steps to take I'll take them, and voila, I'll be as good as new. Boy, was I wrong. Therapists are trained to help you figure out the cause of challenging emotions and learn productive coping skills. They basically assist in creating your own personalized manual, your tool belt. As the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with professionally licensed and vetted therapists available 100% online. Plus, it's affordable. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. No waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com elevator. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash elevator.
0: Rachel, how are you?
2: I'm doing well, Paul. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, fantastic, Rachel. It's great to be here with you. Let's get right into this. When was your last drink, Rachel?
1: Uh, My last drink was September 4th, 2022.
0: September 4th, 2022 of this year. At the time of this recording, it's October 4th. That is 30 days without alcohol, Rachel. That gives me happiness. I'm pumped to hear that. How do you feel?
1: To be honest, um, I'm still struggling. And I like, I just want to share that because I think it's important for people to know that you don't just like put down the alcohol and you're like, woo, I feel great. You know, I haven't really hit the pink cloud yet and I still deal with like depersonalization that sometimes I feel like there are things happening around me and I'm just not quite connected to them. Um, And that was one thing that alcohol helped me deal with. And so without alcohol, um, I'm left to, you know, find sort of my other devices. But I feel hopeful and I feel ready to to take on the days uh, without, you know, raising the glass to my lips.
0: Rachel, I appreciate your honest answer there. This is a very authentic podcast, or at least we try to keep it too, to that. And I hear so many different responses. Hey, how does it feel? You've been seven days, 30 days, two years, right? And sometimes... We're not feeling the emotions that we want to feel. Maybe it's the given day. Maybe it's for the week. It's for the month. That is okay. I remember when I hit my first year away from alcohol and I had many happy moments in that year, but I hit that year date and I was like, oh my gosh, my mind told me I would feel a different way that I would have it all figured out. it was almost like a crisis for my first couple of years, like on my sobriety date. So I understand that. I respect that. There's no right or wrong way to do this. There's no right or wrong way to feel. As we depart from alcohol and you said some things right there, we will unpack later in the interview. I like the depersonalization. I'm curious about that, but let's learn a little bit more about yourself before we move forward. Rachel give listeners some background about yourself, where you're from, what you do for living your age. Uh, Do you have a family? And then what do you like to do for fun?
1: Yeah. So um, yeah, again, my name is Rachel. I'm 29 years old. I grew up in Wisconsin. I love to sing. I love to go and see live music and explore nature. I love hiking. I struggle with PTSD and, um, obviously like substance use disorder.
0: Sure. Okay. Um, do you have a family?
1: Yeah, I do. Um, I have a wonderful partner and I have two kiddos, a uh, four-year-old and uh, almost one-year-old.
0: Fantastic. You like to sing. And before I hit record listeners, she saw the ukuleles on my <laughs> wall and she showed me her ukulele. Do you sing and play the ukulele?
1: I do. Um, Yeah, I've got a couple like YouTube videos of me just goofing around and um, singing. I started in 2020. I started this little thing where I would um, play lullabies for um, kids because I was working with kids and then we didn't get to see each other because of the shutdown. And so I started posting on YouTube um, and I would sing a lullaby and play my ukulele. And um, that was just yeah one thing that I did to try to stay connected in the pandemic.
0: Yeah. I love that. I love that. You know, we use the ukulele here at recovery elevator as a connection tool, right? And it is a very potent connection tool. In fact, when uh, Portuguese and Spanish explorers would have first contact with the indigenous communities that actually pull out the ukulele, because after many, Uh, You know, many contacts that resulted in arrows and and axes being thrown. They're like, wait, we got to try something else. So they actually busted out the ukulele to say, hello, we come in peace. Well, they said they came in peace, but that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But music, uh,
1: the great unifier.
0: (laughs) For sure. Right. For sure. Like, what is this other human being singing? Um, it, It just like evaporates a layer of duality. There's this like disconnection that when we hear people sing, it resonates, and and I'll go here for a second. Every single cell in our body, around seventy trillion of them, have something called primary cilia, which is like an antenna. So we are exquisitely wired for vibration and sound. It's one of the first systems in the body to develop, and it's one of the last systems to go as we pass away, and make the transition. So sound vibration, even if you don't know what you're doing. And I'm talking to Rachel, myself and listeners, even if you don't know what you're doing, it's good to, to just hum sometimes to whistle, to sing in the shower, because for our health and wholeness, it does way more than you think. I find this, I find this branch of recovery very fascinating. (laughs) All right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's definitely been a big part of mine. And, um, it's almost like a, like a stim sometimes, or like, if I, um, am just feeling very anxious or, um, just a big emotion in my body. Like I will just sing like really loud and, um, sometimes in public (laughs)
0: Mm. and,
1: uh, and people are actually fine with that. And so I would encourage anybody to, um, to incorporate that into their daily routine if they so uh,
0: choose. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And Rachel, I'm not a huge heavy metal fan, right? Um, I like all these genres, but occasionally (laughs) I put on my headphones with heavy metal music and I just let it go. Like I'm in my basement and I, the energy needs to move, right? I'm like, ah, and I just let it go. And 10 minutes of that, I I take the headphones off and okay, I'll go to bed. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It really helps me move energy.
1: Sing something really dark and then it just helps you be really cheery.
0: For sure. The duality of life. Yeah. 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 (laughs) And, uh, and I think there are artists who have created these works of art, these musical musical creations that help us move energy or enjoy life. So, all right, (laughs) let's, uh, let's get into your (laughs) journey away from alcohol. Rachel, you're 29 years old right now when did you first recognize alcohol wasn't serving you? And and you might want to start before that moment when you, when you took your first drink, how was college or whatnot, that time of your life? Um, Let's hear it. I'm excited to hear about your journey.
1: Well, I'll say that um, the first time I quit drinking was the day that I left for college. So if that tells you anything about my high school um, experiences, but yeah, so basically um, I really um, identify with that gifted kid burnout syndrome that we talk about, which is basically that as I was growing up, I was good at school. Um, I was in elementary school, you know, really functioning well, doing really good things. And then they would take you out. And it was called gifted and talented, right? And they would take you out of class and you would go do something else. I, I felt different than my peers in a lot of ways. And I didn't feel like I quite fit in, but I never really understood why. And there were a lot of things going on at home where you know, I didn't necessarily feel safe to even feel a lot of my feelings. So a lot of the, um, and especially people that are socialized as women, we tend to be told that like, it's it's not proper to have feelings, right? <laughs> or have anger. And so that, you know, any anger that I had, I just pushed down and down and down and further down until I got into high school. And I was still you know, functioning at a high level, I was um, doing clubs and National Honor Society. And I think you've talked about like, you were, you know, the head of like, you know, different clubs in your high school, or like you did sports, and you were doing these things very well. I, that's, that's my story as well. Um, but then I had like the second life where, um, at first, it became like, well, first, I never I was never going to drink alcohol or do drugs, because I was a dare kid, and I believed in everything that they said, you know, And it, you know, um, my dad had a a drug problem and an alcohol problem, which I didn't really understand, but I knew that there was something going on. And so I was exposed to um, like alcohol abuse and stuff like that very early on. But then I got to high school and again, I just didn't feel like I I fit in with people. Um, And I kind of started drinking to like almost impress people. And after I took like I think I got drunk off of like six beers my first time that I drank. And I was with my girlfriend. We were in the Northwoods. And I was in this relationship where I didn't feel cool enough to be with the person that I was with. And um, she was always wanting me to do, you know, something more, something different and be someone different than I was. And so, yeah, I ended up drinking. And that first time, it was like I finally felt comfortable. I, it was it was this feeling of like like a letting out a sigh that had been inside of me for 16 years. Um, I think I was 16 years old when I took that first drink and things progressed quickly. And I was drinking on the weekends and I remember like blacking out and puking all night and then um, being so embarrassed the next day. But instead of taking that as a warning sign and backing off, I took it like a dare. I was like, I can, I can do this better the next time. And um, so the next weekend I would just go do it again. And eventually I, I had like a pretty high tolerance, but I was also getting myself into these situations that I didn't understand how I got there. I was all of a sudden looking around, and I was in like a very dangerous situation with you know, older people that it's like, why are you hanging out with a high schooler, first of all, as an adult? Uh, why are you giving them alcohol, second of all? And I, I was just having um, a very, very hard time with putting the two sides of my life together Like it was like, there's so much secretive stuff going on. And I graduated high school early. I went to India and all of those people pleasing behaviors and this inability to say no sort of had to go out the window because all of a sudden I was in this place where you had to stand up for yourself. And so that was also the first time since I had started drinking that I was without alcohol for a month just because I couldn't get it anywhere. And so I was sober and I sort of learned in that month a little bit how to stand up for myself. And then I went away to college. I was sober for about two months and then started hanging out with people that drank again. And I kind of thought, you know, that that was my way to make friends. I had a really hard time, like, you know, socializing without alcohol. And so I started drinking again. And pretty soon I was going to work drunk. And I I worked at um, the library at the college that I went to. And I would go in there drunk and high. And um, I don't know if people noticed. I'm sure they did right? I thought that I was being super sneaky, but like I wasn't lasted a year there. And then came back home, kept partying, became a bartender. And that life was perfect for these um, caretaking behaviors I had because I could be like, oh my gosh, you're having a bad day. Something bad happened to you. Oh, here's a shot. I'll take one too. And I was always in the situations where alcohol was accessible to me. Um, I worked at like a coffee shop that did beer and wine I would put half a bottle of wine into a coffee cup, drink that during work, go home to where my roommates were drinking, drink more. And that's when it became, you know, pretty clear that I was an alcoholic. And then I turned 21 and I could get alcohol (laughs) legally for myself. And then it became, you know, drinking in my car by myself, drinking at my house by myself. And then I turned 23. I tried the geographical cure. Like you talk about, I moved out to South Dakota for the summer. Uh, To work at a summer camp. It was a Lutheran summer camp. There was not a lot of people there that were alcoholics, (laughs) surprisingly. And a lot of people that were looking at me like, why is this woman here? She seems very different than us. Embarrassingly, I got my first DUI when I was out in South Dakota, had gone out one night looking to go to a show. Uh, We were late for the show, they didn't let us in. What else can you do in South Dakota? We went to a bar, had a couple too many. Didn't really know the roads. Ended up going 10 over the speed limit. It's very dangerous. Saw the red and blue lights in the back and said, oh, shit. <laughs> but honestly, I was relieved because getting a DUI in South Dakota is a lot different than getting a DUI in Wisconsin as far as um, legal ramifications. And so I actually um, was pretty lucky in that I only had to take like a class and um, do some paperwork and pay a fine. And that one, you know, isn't on my record anymore type of thing. Yeah.
0: Rachel, how old old were you when you got that DUI in South Dakota? So I was 23. 23. Okay. You know, I want to comment on a couple of things you said there. I've heard a lot of people describe their first drink, but I think the way you described it might be one of my favorites. You said... It was like this sigh that I've been holding in or this energy that I'm holding in. And you let out this sigh for 16 years, it's been building. And I recall that was similar when I had my first drink was like, oh, okay, this is it. I mean, you're going to forge a great relationship, me, you and alcohol. I love how you said that. You know, you also talked about there were two sides of you and there was almost this dissonance internally, but alcohol helped to reconcile that. It helped bridge the gap. And I recognize that too, right? And I think earlier in the interview, you said it was, I think you said alcohol is like the medicine or whatnot. I don't know how you phrased it, but I I, I resonate with that. I know a lot of listeners, A, are, are, are nodding their head about the collective sigh or like when they that first drink's like, ah, okay, I needed that. I, I really did. I needed that first drink. And you're right, there was this other side of me that was the, the screaming louder and louder. At first, not screaming, but it, it, at the end, it became very loud. And But alcohol appeased that other side and and you remove the alcohol. And yes, it's tough. And I love your answer at the beginning. How's, how's it been this 30 days? Well, I'm struggling, right? <laughs> I don't have this magical elixir or, or, or this ethanol thing that society told me that it's totally fine and safe to drink and it's going to be all that stuff. So, okay, you're 20. Actually, I actually want to go back just a little bit. And sisters, yeah. you know, when you said, you know, I first quit drinking when going to college, it's like, all right, there's a little bit of writing on the wall there. And you're going into maybe <laughs> a four-year public institution, who knows, in the Amer- American collegiate system, those are contemporaneous with drinking. Um, and when you said that, I was like, oh no, <laughs> that's, that's a challenge. <laughs> so I, I, I feel you there. I probably would have drank in less than two months. I'm surprised you made it two months. But uh, you made it through college. You have a DUI at 23, and again, I know I had some others, other listeners, including myself, nod their head and say it was almost, it was almost a relief. I remember when I got my DUI in 2014. Yes, it sucked, but I remember seeing the lights. I was like, ah, finally the gig is up. Like you're waiting. Yes. You're waiting for this external, this external pressure to stop this internal ball of energy called addiction. And and actually I, I believe I haven't said this in a while. So we'll see if I can still still recite this, but it's Newton's third law of energy, it can describe an addiction very well in terms of physics, where an addiction is a ball of energy in your brain. It's it's a bundle of thoughts and it's and it it's in motion, right? And just like the third law says, an object of equal or greater force needs to act upon that that object, your addiction. And sometimes that's lights in the rear view mirrors. Sometimes that's the rock bottom moment. So I understand that feeling when you were relieved. Um, You're 29, 23 was not your sobriety date or the year you got sober. Bridge the gap, Rachel. And and I'm going to say you're doing great. You're doing a great job with this interview right now.
1: Thank you. I came back home to the same environment that I had been in when I left. But the difference was that I uh, was actually pregnant with my first daughter. And so that led me into about two and a half years of sobriety. But I didn't understand that, you know, I wasn't ready to admit that I was an alcoholic or I had a problem with alcohol. And you've actually, I think, talked about this, like the white knuckling it. Like, that's totally what I was doing. I was just like, you know, avoiding like anything that, you know, could make me drink. I wasn't going out. I wasn't doing, you know, all of the things that I had been doing. And for the first time in my life, um, I, I let myself rest. I let myself, you know, I had been going 110 miles an hour since I was a teenager, just not really understanding these feelings that were coming out of me and these situations that I was, you know, drugs and alcohol and, you know, sort of just saying yes to everything. It's like, yes, yes, yes. And all of a sudden I'm, you know, on a a motorcycle going 100 miles an hour down the freeway and just not caring that I could die and and almost, you know... almost welcoming it in a way. And so that was when I knew that I needed to do um, the move. So did the move, came back, I was pregnant, did great till the pandemic hit. And then I slowly started to say, oh, I think it would be fine. Like I could just have one, like I could just have one, um, you know, whiskey drink, uh, but whiskey drinks taste really good. And then I want, I'll just have another one, you know, and it's never, it, I, I drink to get drunk. It's never just one. One is I actually, from the very last day that I drank, I have this white claw that's sitting in, I don't even like white claws, right? Uh, It's more just symbolic. It's sitting in my cupboard right now. And it says, I wrote on it, do not drink. Not now, not ever. You'll be an alcoholic forever. And when I look at it, I've had plenty of times where I'm like, just open it, you know, in my head, just open it, just open it. Oh, the and white,
0: the white claw is, it, it's full. The
1: one white claw. Ah,
0: it's full. okay. It's It's sitting right.
1: there. It's sitting there. But I know that it would be pointless because I cannot have just one drink. So why would I open it?
0: Yeah. And Rachel, I, I, I can't see the listeners, but I know a lot of people are nodding their head when you said, I drink to get drunk, right? There's this, there's this gap. There's a divide that we don't quite understand I've watched people across the table, drink one, order a second and not finish the whole second drink. And and we pay the check and leave. And in my mind, I'm like, what is going on? Uh, as this what person are they doing? Pluto, yeah, yeah <laughs> they are crazy. But really, it, it was flipped as yeah, my drinking was a little out of balance, but I understand that. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's been a hot minute since my last drink and I have never had a white cloth. <laughs> and I'm, I hope that never You're changes. You're not
1: missing out. Yeah, you're not missing out. Those came out during my like first, like yeah, white knuckling stint of sobriety or whatever. And when I finally got back into drinking, I tried one and I was. Just, this is really nasty. I don't know why people are liking this so much.
0: <laughs> yeah, and I saw it wasn't white claw, but you know a, a remix of that, loaded with caffeine and taurine. And I'm like, oh goodness gracious, <laughs> we are oh, in trouble.
1: <laughs> yeah, that reminds me. That just reminds me of um of college yeah just sitting there drinking like a, uh what did they call them um oh i can't remember the name of those big drinks that they yeah it was alcohol and and um caffeine mixed together yeah uh, for loco that's Four what it loco.
0: is yeah 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 <laughs> 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 okay so rachel I, I want to leave some time for the recovery component too so so yeah so so take us up to the point a little closer to your sobriety date or or talk to us about that
1: yeah Yeah, so increased drinking a lot um, during the pandemic, it escalated um, pretty quickly, right? Which is, um, you talk about how alcohol is a progressive disease. um, And that that was, I found that so true for me. When I started drinking again, it was sort of just where I left off, right? And so um, all of a sudden, you know, it's like now I, I need a whole case of something or I need a whole bottle of something to satisfy You know, my daughter would go to bed and I would sit out on my porch and just drink an entire bottle of whiskey to myself. Like, that's no way to live. That's no way to parent. Waking up in the morning after that was not easy. And, yep. So, went through, you know, the pandemic at the end of 2020 is when my partner and I um, got together and um, started dating. He was actually somebody that I have known for like 10 plus years. We, you know, kind of met in the party scene. And so, we got together. He kind of knew about my drinking habits. He is a normal drinker, so he can have like one drink and stop. Ridiculous to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How do they get the Um, term normal? doesn't seem normal to me.
1: (laughs) Oh, not at all. So I got pregnant with my second daughter. Again, you know, was sober, um, but started even sooner after having her. Um, I had really bad postpartum depression and anxiety and having some alcohol, made me feel like that, that I was, that was going to fix it, you know, for the moment. I was really struggling, um, even up to a couple of months ago. Um, and, and I just want to say that, yeah, like postpartum, like that can be so tough. And so, um, for any women out there that are like listening to this and are in that same situation, I just want to say that you're not alone. It can feel really lonely, but you know, you're not alone. There's a lot of us out here. So it escalated even more quickly to the point where, um, you know i was you know now i'm drinking before the kids go to sleep now i'm gonna get a whole bottle and drink the whole thing and um yeah the last straw was i blacked out before my daughter went to bed i always read her two stories um every night i read her two stories and i i woke up at 3 a.m. um just in a complete panic and realized that i could not remember the stories that i had um read to her or if i had read her, her stories and that was it for me that was heartbreaking for me because i realized that i was becoming the exact thing that i said that i wasn't going to become and that mm. you know my dad had been i had watched you know him you know swaying and um he also had an opiate addiction so he would be like nodding out you know at, and i was a kid and that you know um not really understanding and you know his dad had an alcohol addiction and my dad went through the same thing when he was a kid, and he didn't deserve that. And I didn't deserve that. And it has to stop somewhere. Yeah. And so I decided that I'm going to be the person that um that it stops with. I have to,
0: Rachel. So if I understand correctly, thirty days ago, you were blacked out and didn't remember reading your children's bednight story, bedtime stories, correct? Yep. Wow yep, and, that's right. and that awareness of of, oh my gosh, I have become, you know, what I didn't want to become. I see this sequential energy being passed down to my family. And the cycle has to stop here. Um, Wow. That's powerful. And and what awareness to have. Um, What what, what was that feeling the next day? Was it shame? Was it uh, like something has to change? What happened?
1: Shame, guilt, frantic energy, but at the same time, not wanting to like, let her know that I was um like panicking so I kind of like in the morning I sat down by her and I was like hey um I said and this is you know even bad probably in itself is like do you remember um what stories we read last night and she said something like yeah um you were too tired so um I just went to bed. We stopped reading, and I just went to bed. Yeah. And for like a four-year-old to say that, like that, that was absolutely heartbreaking. And and so yeah, that that's the moment that was my rock bottom. Was hearing her say that.
0: Wow. That was my rock bottom. Yeah, you know, listeners, quitting drinking is the opportunity of a lifetime, and and yeah, we want to have that in the focal point. But sometimes it's the pain that's the driver. And actually, when I say sometimes it's, it's almost all the time <laughs> when, when departing from an addiction and, and we are in an alcohol podcast, that's what we focus on here. And more oftentimes than not, I, I hear the tipping point of what pushes them off is a very painful moment with shame and guilt. Sometimes, sometimes it's physical pain. Sometimes it's a car crash or whatnot. Yeah. And so, yes, eventually we'll, we'll change our fuel sources to, wow, this is a great opportunity, but use that pain listeners. Use that as motivation. And don't forget it, right? There's another thing called ism, alcoholism, the incredible short memory of that. I remember the last couple of binges that I had, the first 72 hours were so brutal, Rachel, but I remember leaning into the pain so much saying, Paul, at the cellular level, don't forget this, like imprint this pain. This is why you're quitting drinking. And, and, and pain is a, is a very, very powerful driver. It is. And sometimes we do things out of love, but sometimes we do things out of fear that we don't go back to that pain. And and that's not a bad thing that can be healthy. So, so day one, walk us through that first day, that first week.
1: So I've, um, I've quit alcohol many times before and luckily, um, you know, my body wasn't physically dependent on it because like I could go a couple of days without drinking and then I would drink again, or, you know, I could go a week. Sometimes I would make it a month, but yeah. So the first day, a lot of, a lot of reflection, a lot of, um, trying to give myself compassion, just sort of holding myself in the, the, the truth of life and, um, you know, where, where things have taken me so far, um, how I got to the moment of, of yeah having that conversation with my daughter and deciding that you know this this has to be it um a lot of sparkling water (laughs) uh diet soda here or there lots of different like just having the drink in my hand like that is something that my body actually just like wants to have so like constantly having something on me
0: yeah we're on zoom right now what are are you drinking though can I
1: see it? Uh right now I've got uh aura bora uh and it's herbal sparkling water and the flavor is uh peppermint watermelon. Peppermint. So watermelon. something interesting. yeah exactly. Um I did end up like buying um some alcohol free whiskey. So it's I think the brand is like Mondays, and um they put in like a I don't know how to say it, a cap like capsaicin or capsaicin Um to make it kind of have that burning feel. So it actually does feel like you're drinking something. So that has helped. I can make myself like a non-alcoholic whiskey old fashioned. And that's wonderful um, because sometimes it's, it's not actually like the alcohol itself. It's more like just wanting to have a drink in your hand or just wanting something to do. It's like that um, oral fixation to trying to kind of trick my body in that way.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You know, dopamine is an interesting chemical molecule, right? And it's not, quite the pleasure molecule. It's more of the learning molecule. And even though you're going after, you know, a non-alcoholic whiskey or an NA beer or anything, there's still dopamine released there. And it's, it's, it's not in an unhealthy way, right? We're still finding a way to hydrate ourselves, which of course we're human beings. We're two thirds water. We need, we need, (laughs) we need hydration, but, uh, yeah, I mean, dopamine can be released in, in, in just getting an NA beverage. So. I don't know. I, I, I see that. And I find it interesting. They add something to give you that feeling that your esophagus is burning, like the real alcohol going down. <laughs> yeah.
2: <Right>. yeah.
0: <laughs> interesting. Well, I mean, it's so interesting where the, the NA beverage market is going. Um, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. It really is. Um, okay. Keep going.
1: Yeah. So I have also been trying to, yeah. Like you um are talking about like, Dopamine release. Um, trying to find different ways uh, for that to happen. So exercise. Um, doing yoga is another thing that I really like. Singing. Right. There's also like uh, deliberate cold exposure. I've been sort of, you know, trying to do that. Although it it sucks really bad. Like I'm just. Gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna Let me cover that,
0: that real quick. I, last yeah. night when I was drifting off to sleep, I was listening to a, a YouTube video, and they talk about. Uh, anywhere from three to 10 minutes of an ice cold bath where elevate your dopamine levels to 200 to 250% for the next two to three hours. Right. And what that is, it's the pain and pleasure balance of dopamine. Right. So with that, you're sparking the pain part first. And then there's always a lever that, that has to equal out on the other side. So your dopamine raises usually. So in 2022, it's the opposite side of that. We have so much pleasure at our fingertips, our screens, our phone, alcohol, all that stuff. So experience the the pain first, and then the dopamine will bounce off later. It's just really uncomfortable waiting for dopamine to balance off later. And dopamine is a finite substance, but it is always replenishable. It's a really interesting molecule. And and most addictions are directly tied to dopamine. Um, and, And Rachel, what's What's probably the most important lesson you've learned about yourself in these last 30 days?
1: That I'm strong enough to make a decision and stick to it. I think a lot of my life, I was a pretty big pushover. And it it was sort of like, oh, well, you think I'm a pushover to you? Like, just watch how much of a pushover I can be to myself. Like, (laughs) I'll be like, I'm not gonna drink. And then I'm like Dory from Finding Nemo. Hey, there's a drink, you know? Um, (laughs) And so um, just teaching myself that I can make a decision and stick to it. Um, I think is is the biggest lesson for me.
0: Yeah. And what are your thoughts on relapse?
1: I think that uh, relapse is just a part of recovery. Harm reduction is important. So, um, you know, if you can find the least harmful way, and um, that's also to yourself, um, alcohol is extremely harmful to our bodies on a cellular level. So if we can just remember that and, you know, find other ways to find that dopamine and and not put that drink in our hand, um, that's ideal. Also being kind to yourself and compassionate.
0: Yeah, Rachel, I love how you frame that. What are your thoughts on relapse? I don't like that question, but sometimes I ask it and by the stats, if it's pretty common, I think the most accurate way to say it is relapse is a part of recovery. I like how you said that it was a part of my recovery. People thought I was one and done. Not true. Hundreds of day ones. And if you do relapse, get right back on it. And it's more of a total picture. Sometimes people say, yeah. And for me, I think in the 2010s, I was, I was sober like 98% of the time. Big win. Right. Yeah. Rachel um, you know, what advice would you give to your younger self?
1: Oh my gosh. I would give her a huge hug. I have, I look back on myself even in those, like I said, you know, sometimes dangerous situations that I was getting myself into. And I have so much love for that person who didn't have any love for herself at the time. And I think even like the me that's 10 years in the future is looking back at me right now and just saying thank you. And so, um, yeah, I hope that this is going to be my last, my last day one, um, September 4th, and I'm going to stick with that.
0: Love the answer. Usually we go from now going back, but you went 10 years in the future coming back to right now. And time is an interesting topic in itself. Really, you are that person 10 years from now, right now as well. Um, Before we hit the rapid fire round, Rachel, one more question. You know, When you experience a craving or a triggered, what, what do you do?
1: So that is, it depends on the day. First and foremost, I name it, right? So like, oh, wow, here's that feeling again. Um, here's that thing that I do. Here's that, you know, other person inside of me that, you know, (laughs) you can even like name the other person inside of you. Like if you want to name them, um, like Bruno or, you know, whatever it wants to be, but knowing that, um, that, that part is, is separate from me. That's actually not me, but that is just, um, my addiction speaking to me in my own voice. So naming it is the first thing and then, um, finding something to do with it, whether it, you know, if, if it's coming up as a big ball of anxiety and you can feel it in your body. There was even a point a couple of months ago where I would just get out of the house and I would just run as far as I could take off, you know, no planning, just run. And sometimes that is the, that is the, um, the energy that you have to get out. Sometimes it might be the opposite. You might uh, want to just do a tree post for three minutes and go inside of yourself and say, Hey, check in with yourself hey, that voice is talking to us again. How are you doing? You know, are it, even looking for the reason. Why am I so triggered right now? Why am I wanting this right now? What has happened? Did somebody flip me off on the freeway and, uh, you know, it's completely ruined my day? Or is it something, you know, with family, with, you know, different things that you're feeling? Is it loneliness? Is it you're feeling scared about something? And then giving that part of you a little bit of love.
0: Yeah. I love that. And naming it in indigenous cultures, this was a shamanistic practice. Shamans knew that they had to name something because it isn't you. You just said that, be it an addiction, be it depression, be it anxiety, be it whatever type of illness or inflammation, it's not you. So I like that when that wave of energy or that voice, I always just say Bruno voice used to be Gary, but I like, Disney (laughs) did a great job with that movie Encanto like you know what yeah we're, we're transitioning <laughs> we're we're now into bruno territory yeah um, and
1: we have to talk about bruno though we do have to talk about oh,
0: that song we for sure for sure it's so good to see almost like enlightened or or businesses that are awake and and making these pieces of art that help kids realize that yeah there's a voice inside my head it's not me sometimes it doesn't have my best interest in mind it separates me from the pack creates fear and anxiety, separation, Q, anxiety, depression, what's up, addiction, all that stuff. So we got to talk about Bruno. I like how you said that.
1: Yeah. Well, and I think even like uh, the generations before us um, were sort of like not, you know, they were never supposed to talk about anything that was happening. And, you know, you could see something happen right in front of you. And somebody said, Oh, that's not what happened. And there was a lot of things that just had to be sort of silent. And now we've got, um, the wonderful connection of the internet. And, um, you know, people are are finally talking about these things that have happened to them and, you know, how that can potentially cause, you know, PTSD or substance use disorders. Um, and people are naming it and they're talking about Bruno. And I think that that's going to help the generations behind us, um, to see us doing this and to say, wow, um, I can name these things. I can talk about these things. I don't have to keep them inside.
0: For sure. Yep. Just like the AF beverage movement is sweeping. It's fun to see the, the mental health movement really take hold. And it has to. Rachel, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 10 to 30 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am ready. All right, Rachel, what's the one thing you've learned about yourself since quitting drinking?
1: I am strong enough to put down that drink. I don't need that drink to do things that I need to do.
0: Yeah. Okay. Best sober moment.
1: I would say the best sober moments were, honestly, having my two girls going through the the birthing process. it, in a way you're not sober because there's so many chemicals going on but like the the day after you give birth and like looking at this little human that you made there's nothing that can beat that and every moment of my sobriety from here on out is, is for them is for that mo- those moments that i had
0: yeah what's uh what's your favorite alcohol free drink
1: um so i've been really loving the um monday's zero alcohol whiskey Ah.
0: Oh, okay all right what's your favorite 90s band
1: I was a big Britney Spears fan.
0: For sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've seen her live. I'm not afraid to admit it.
1: Wow. For sure. Well, you're one one step ahead of me then.
0: Yeah. Um, What has recovery made possible for you?
1: Recovery has made possible that I can take charge of my own life. Um, I don't just have to be reactive, but I can actually plan things out and I can make sure that I'm living the life that I want to live.
0: Yeah. Speaking of that, what is the point of life?
1: I think the point of life is to see, we are the universe experiencing it's experience itself. You know, the universe has sort of made us, and all of a sudden we're conscious and we're able to see the world around us. So I think it's to experience it and then to do something to make it better.
0: Hmm, I love it. And last question, Rachel, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners?
1: Be kind to yourself. Be gentle with yourself. As alcoholics, we are so hard on ourselves. And... You might be, you know, telling yourself that you're a bad person. You might be telling yourself that you're never going to get over this and that you're going to be, like I said, in my little poem, an alcoholic forever. And while that is true, you don't need to have alcohol in your life forever. Mm -hmm. You can, you can um, make it through the day, you know, without putting that bottle to, to your lips.
0: Yeah. Love it. And Rachel, before we depart, give listeners your own, you might need to ditch the booze if line.
1: Okay. You might need to ditch the booth if you buy a bottle that's smaller than you actually want to drink and then drink the whole thing and then decide that you need more and go back to the liquor store drunk.
0: Yep. Check. Done it. Love it. (laughs) Rachel, thank you so (laughs) much for joining us today. I really enjoyed our time together. I know the interview is going to help a lot of people and it was inspirational to me as well.
1: Thank you so much, Paul. And yeah, um, yeah, to everybody out there, just um, you can do it.
0: All right. Thank you, Rachel. Listeners, as I started the intro today, I spoke of the stigma. I said, what if it's wrong? What if it's flat out wrong? But here's another way to say it. What if it doesn't exist? I've been doing RE for several years now. And in my personal experience, and I've chatted with uh, a good couple hundred, almost 300 on this podcast, the common response when we open up and we're authentic to other people is a reciprocal response. Human beings are wired for authenticity. We yearn for it. We crave it. When somebody opens up about a struggle with alcohol, or maybe a depression or anxiety, the other person almost always reciprocates it. Very rarely have I heard of, of a negative response. In fact, I put it about the 1%. Again, 1%, but a different 1%. And here's where alcohol is working in your favor. It's a filter. That 1% will just be swept aside. Your decision of quitting drinking will, will remove those people from your life. So another thing with the stigma is I feel it's mostly self-imposed in our body. We don't like the unknown and the thought of living an alcohol free life, even though alcohol may be killing us in the moment. It's quite scary. The brain doesn't like that. So we add a layer of, well, no one's going to like me. The planets are going to fall out of orbit, uh, stuff like that. So again, the stigma, I can tell you right now, it's not what your brain is making it out to be. And from personal experience, I will even venture to say that it doesn't exist. Uh, And perhaps with the point that I was trying to drive home today with Elaine's comment is, maybe we are just the badass gangsters this planet needs to make some real and lasting change. Recovery Elevator, it all starts from the inside out. I love you guys.